Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, how can you and your loved ones celebrate holiday traditions safely this year? When you're going to be in people's company, the physical distance makes sense. The hand washing makes sense. Don't touch your mask all the time. Those are all important, important things to remember throughout the holiday season. A colorectal surgeon explains what hemorrhoids are and how they can be treated if they cause you problems. Hemorrhoids are within all of us, so we are born with three hemorrhoidal cushions of tissue and underlying blood vessels that help with a person's continence. And a social worker talks about end-of-life plans and the documents everyone over the age of 18 needs to have. It's more rare to have someone have, you know, a healthcare proxy already completed, a power of attorney. It's much more common for folks to have thought about it, but they never got around to it. All that, plus a visit from the Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn about hemorrhoids and what can be done if they're causing you problems. Then, a social worker will talk about the important documents every adult needs to have in place. But first, Dr. Koshal Nanavati is back to discuss holiday celebrations and how they may change this year. Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The holiday season is likely to be very different for many of us this year because of the pandemic. Here to discuss this is Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's the Assistant Dean of Wellness at Upstate, an Assistant Professor of Family Medicine, and the Medical Director of Integrative Therapy. He's also a frequent guest on HealthLink on Air. Thank you for being here, Dr. Nanavati. Thank you for having me back. Well, we're coming up on a year almost since the first case of COVID-19 was diagnosed in America, and it seems like since then everything has changed. We still have travel restrictions, and we still have the threat of infection with a virus that has killed more than 220,000 Americans. So let's talk about what traditions can safely take place this year as we get into the holiday season. Well, you know, it's interesting that, uh, you know, this is the time of the year where not just in the United States, but, you know, cultures around the world, uh, whether you think about, you know, in India, where, you know, festivals like Navratri and, and Diwali uh, have been celebrated. You know, we had Halloween here, and now we're talking about things like Thanksgiving, uh, you know, the Christmas time, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, a lot of the holidays that come up. Uh, and first thing people think about is family and getting together. Uh, and sharing time and space. Uh, and then we have COVID. And unfortunately, uh, it's a sad reality. And at the same time, uh, I think part of what happens for people and all of us in general is that disappointment comes as a result of an expectation that we often have. And so if we set our expectations prior to this peak holiday season in the right space, then we may actually find that we suffer less disappointment, less distress. Uh, and it really is about, you know, accepting the reality, but then setting our expectation in a space of creating optimal joy with safety as the foundation, right? So these holidays, for many of us, reconnecting with, you know, family is that that is the holiday. That's the reason for the holiday. So if, if people live far apart, how are they going to be able or will they be able to connect in a meaningful way at some point? Even though I, I get that it may be different, but can we still feel some togetherness? The reality is, is that uh, we're going to have to be practical. Uh, and yet I'm not a big fan of the term social distancing. I think I've mentioned that before. I like the idea of you know, physical distancing, but social connectivity. So whether we use, you know, channels of video conferencing, whatever they may be, uh, whether it's Zoom or Weblink or Skype or, you know, uh, whatever your WhatsApp or whatever you're using around the world, it's really important to connect, right? And how we connect, how creative we get with the connectivity, 
Uh, I know that in our own family, what we've done to celebrate family functions over the last few months is created, you know, combined video clips, right, uh, that we put together to uh, get people in different families to either act out something, do something, dance, sing, whatever it may be. And then we create a collective video that we all share together and spend time together. We've had friends with whom we had meals together online, which is to say that, you know, we're sitting at our table and they're sitting at their table and we're enjoying a great meal and they're enjoying a great meal and we're teasing back and forth. We're enjoying each other's company through the screen uh, back and forth. And the reality is versus not doing that, to have that connection is still a memory. And it's such a unique memory that down the road, when we're together again, we'll be able to talk about the time that we were together without being together physically, right? Uh, so the reality, you know, most of us should think about how do I imbue joy in a moment and a time of frustration versus stay stuck there, right? We all feel feelings, we're human. Uh, you know, people in my life always remind me that, hey, listen, we're not all saints. You know, I get mad, I get sad, I might yell, I might scream, I might cry. And the point is, what you choose to stay stuck in, right? So if you don't like that feeling, don't stay there, right? Create a joyful moment. Uh, and I think if all of us think about planning ahead, how do we create Thanksgiving to actually be a moment of thanks and gratitude, right? For those of us that have our health, for our safety. And think about the people, even in your neighborhood, who might not have as much connection Maybe this is a time to pay it forward, right? Shouldn't it be? Uh, maybe we offer something to others versus just focusing on what am I gonna get during this holiday season? So maybe that's how it would be different this year. It, it, are there, do you think there's safe ways that people can gather in, in person? So the Centers for Disease Control, you know, actually has on their website really nice kind of low, mid, and high risk types of ways to do things. Um, but it's really difficult for us to say that people in two different households, um, you know, getting together is not going to pose any risk because it will. Uh, how do we make it low risk? Uh, people can quarantine uh, prior to, right? Uh, so they can self-quarantine in their homes for 14 days before they get together that in some sense would lower risk. People can get tests done before and tests done after the gathering. Uh, if there's availability of testing and the result turnaround time, you know, is expedient enough. Uh, but even when you get a test done, if it's negative, um, you know, there's a delay time between uh, getting exposure and getting a positive test. And so sometimes if you've just been exposed and you get a test, it might be negative, but a few days later it could be positive. Right. So because there's so much gray space, one of the most important things for people to realize is if you stay stuck on, I have to have it this way. Otherwise, this is a failure. Right. Uh, and if we only accept one outcome, then what happens is we miss out on all the potential joy there is. Right. Uh, that being said, we think about. You know, if you're going to stay in somebody's home versus a hotel, but if you're going for an extended period of time, let's say two weeks, then it might be feasible to get tested and stay in a more controlled environment as a home versus in a hotel that might not be as controlled, right? The other thing is airlines versus driving, right? When we think about it, uh, generally speaking, the ventilation systems in airlines are actually very good. But that being said, being in a controlled environment in your own vehicle, a majority of holiday travel happens in cars and vehicles, not in airlines, right? So airlines are expecting maybe half or less the amount of air travel time or air travel traffic. But in an airport, you're still going to be in lines, you know, in close proximity to people. And then people do things like, you know, keep the mask under their nose um, as, you know, either a lack of awareness or as a means of defiance, or, you know, I can't breathe, those types of things. And we respect their personal needs, but in this time and circumstance, we have to respect the needs of the populace as a whole. Uh, and so what I would say is trying to be more controlled. Uh, driving is better probably than flying right now. Uh, but in reality, if you don't need to drive, again, you think, well, I want to go see my parents. I haven't seen them in a year. Right, but your parents are in an age group that might be at higher risk, 
right? Or I want to go see relatives, but they might have children or they might have people with other chronic conditions or things that lower their immune system. Well, give them love by actually keeping physical distance, right? Uh, the fundamentals haven't changed, the hand washing, mask wearing, and also the physical distancing. In fact, what they say is for people that are at risk, uh, they should probably wear the, the medical masks uh, that are given, you know, where the, the darker color is actually um, water repellent or fluid repellent, and then the inside is absorbent. People should remember that if you're coughing with a mask on, don't lower the mask and cough. Cough into the mask, that's going to absorb the, the stuff, right? The uh, debris and stuff that comes out and all the aerosolized particles that come out. People that are immune, uh, you know, have their good, healthy immune systems and don't have high risk, they may be able to wear other masks. But again, when you're going to be in people's company, the physical distance makes sense. The hand washing makes sense. Don't touch your mask all the time. Don't touch your face, you know, touch your eyes, rub your eyes, uh, unless you wash your hands. Those are all important, important things to remember throughout the holiday season. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking about this year's holiday season with the Assistant Dean of Wellness, Dr. Koshal Nanavati. So let's talk about traditions because those are important in families. We saw major changes to the way Halloween was celebrated this year. What do you say to someone who is trying to plan Thanksgiving? Are there high-risk activities that we might need to rethink? So, I, you know, I, uh, I, I was just hearing myself in my own head, and I kept saying, don't, don't, don't. Sounds very negative, right? This is the holiday season. I love the holiday season. Uh, and so, you know, let's talk about the do's, right? What are the things to do during this holiday season? Uh, and when it comes to family traditions, uh, a lot of times it, it uh, revolves around, like, Thanksgiving. We talk about, you know, especially here in the United States, football games, everybody gets together and watches those. Uh, you know, during the holidays, alcohol is a part of a lot of people's, you know, official or unofficial traditions, uh, which can have a big impact on the immune system. And during time of COVID, we have to be careful about that. So, you know, do the things that you like to do responsibly. Uh, again, large gatherings uh, are not recommended, but do watch the football game if you want to. And stay connected with family or relatives, whether it be through texting, uh, you know, having them on screen, um, you know, any way that you can connect and communicate. When you think about uh, the meal planning, right, think about uh, meals that you guys can all share um, virtually, right? Uh, think about doing things like uh, for kids, uh, things like, you know, quizzes and uh, even things like scavenger hunts, et cetera. Uh, which are ways to get kids engaged uh, versus feeling more down and, uh, you know, feeling disconnected. Uh, so I think that's important as far as things like singing Christmas carols uh, or going around uh, the neighborhood, et cetera. Uh, you know, what we learned from Halloween uh, and the guidelines that uh, and the guidance we had gotten at least here in New York State from the Department of Health and from the governor's office was that, you know, you want to be practical. Uh, you want to make sure that people aren't, uh, you know, dipping into the same bowl to grab stuff. So you try to get individually, uh, you know, ser individual servings set up beforehand uh, so that people are comfortable, uh, you know, taking food, et cetera. Uh, so there are practical ways that we can do these things so that there are a lot of do's, right? Do sing Christmas carols, right? Record yourself um, or, you know, get online. And so these are ways in which we can still do a lot of fun things. Uh, people should focus on how do we get it done, right? When no is not an option, wonderful possibilities emerge, right? And in this case, having fun is an option. We have to figure out how and, you know, collectively get creative. Uh, I think on social media, this is one way it can be positive which is people can share some of the creative things that they're doing or planning on doing so that other people get ideas, right? Well, even without a pandemic, the holiday season for some people is a real stressful time for a variety of reasons. And this year, probably more so than others. What can we do ahead of time to try to head this off this year? I think one of the most important things for people to recognize is self-care. Uh, so when we talk about their nutrition and physical activity, exercise is a great way. Uh, 
to de-stress, but sometimes people feel isolated. And with COVID, we've really seen that a lot. So, you know, uh, to all of us, what I would implore us to do is think about our relatives, think about our friends, think about our neighbors, think about people we know who have distress and actively reach out. Uh, when we connect people uh, and they realize that they're, they do have meaningful relationships in their life, that's connected to a better sense of joy and happiness as well. Uh, and so that's really important. I think organizations, healthcare organizations, physicians practices, uh, county health departments uh, and psychiatry offices, et cetera, one of the important things they can think about is recognizing that crisis lines may get a lot more phone calls. And so you wanna staff services accordingly uh, so that people don't feel like they're out on their own and alone. People should know that they can always contact somebody, get support, uh, and we at Upstate are definitely motivated to help uh, our local and regional community as best as we can. Uh, and they should feel that they are empowered to enjoy uh, and that we're supportive in every way we can be. Well, lots of good advice. Thank you to Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's a doctor of family medicine and integrative therapy at Upstate and also the assistant dean of wellness. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show. Health Link on Air. Coming up next on Upstate's Health Link on Air, what you need to know about hemorrhoids. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Nearly three out of four adults will have hemorrhoids from time to time. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Christina Goh. She's an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate who specializes in colon and rectal surgery. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Goh. Oh, thank you very much. Happy to be here. Well, let's start with what are hemorrhoids? Yeah, so hemorrhoids are within all of us. So we are born with three hemorrhoidal cushions in the anal canal. And basically these are cushions of tissue and underlying blood vessels that help with a person's continence. And so what does that mean? Um, what What is continence? Yeah, so it's uh, the ability to go to the bathroom and have a bowel movement whenever it's socially acceptable for you and not have it have any kind of leakage or accidents whenever um, you're not ready to go to the bathroom to do so. So they actually, hemorrhoids have a function that's pretty important. Mm-hmm. So it's not the only way that somebody is able to uh control their ability to go and have a bowel movement, but it is really the reason why, why they're there and, and why people are born with this anatomical portion of their body. All right. Well, I think a lot of us have this uh, image that hemorrhoids are, are bad um, and, and they do cause some of us problems. So what, what turns them into being a problematic issue for some people? So Hemorrhoids start to become bad when they cause different symptoms. Um, those symptoms are most commonly bleeding, um, generally with bowel movements. It could also be pain. That can range from everything from just some discomfort while sitting to a very sharp sudden pain um, should a blood clot um, in those underlying vessels I talked about form. Um, or the tissue from these cushions can prolapse or basically come out of the anal canal, either with a bowel movement or stay out, um, even when you're not trying to strain, um, in a way that can be very bothersome to patients, either with discomfort or their hygiene down there. Um, so that's really when they cause a problem. Um, people generally develop uh, symptoms from their hemorrhoids around the age of 45 to 65. Um, and some of the things that we've seen that can cause these symptoms to occur include stuff like constipation, um, increased pressure on the abdomen. Um, you often, uh, if you have friends who have been recently pregnant, they might have shared with you um, that they had problems with their hemorrhoid, particularly in the last trimester of their pregnancy, because that's when the most amount of abdominal pressure can occur. 
So those are some examples. Do hemorrhoids affect more women than men because of the pregnancy issues, or do you see it in both genders? So it's pretty evenly distributed between both genders, um, particularly because of um, the straining throughout one's life and, uh, you know, problems with constipation. Do you, is there uh, some element of heredity to hemorrhoids? In other words, if my father or mother um, had problems with hemorrhoids, am I more likely to have problems with hemorrhoids? So at least the studies that are out there right now don't have a hereditary link to hemorrhoidal disease. Um, I would say that sometimes if you have a whole family who is having problems with hemorrhoids, it might be a their toileting or um, dietary behavior since they're sharing meals together that might be contributing to it rather than an, a gen genetic um, cause for that. Well, let's talk about how hemorrhoids are diagnosed. I, I assume, you know, if you're having symptoms that are bothersome, pain or bleeding, um, you'll probably bring it up with your primary care provider. Are there uh, symptoms that people really need to act on quickly? Are there any sort of red flags? So generally speaking, bleeding um, can often be a red flag. The bleeding from hemorrhoidal disease uh, usually is self-contained, as in um, patients will come in saying, well, whenever I wipe uh, with a toilet paper, I, I see some staining on the toilet paper, or I see it sort of staining the toilet water. But if you're having dark bleeding and persistent bleeding, that's a red flag that you should go and see a healthcare provider. Um, if you're having bleeding where you're getting dizzy um, and lightheaded, that's that's definitely a red flag that you should um, more urgently or emergently go to your local emergency department or urgent care for further evaluation. So are hemorrhoids, they could become an emergency then in some cases? So they can. Um, bleeding uh, is usually self-contained, like I said. And so if you're having that amount of bleeding, while hemorrhoids is part of the list of things that we would be thinking about, we would probably be thinking about more urgent issues um, that affect the colon and, and rectum and not necessarily the hemorrhoids themselves. Another way that hemorrhoids in particular can become an emergent issue is if we were going to go back to our discussion about prolapsing tissue, um, if the hemorrhoids get stuck uh, outside of the anal canal, they can become incarcerated. Um, and also the blood supply can be affected. So if you're having significant pain and um, this tissue can't go back in, that, that would be probably the scenario that I would say would be an emergency evaluation. Now, is there any connection between um, problem hemorrhoids and colorectal cancer? So for problem hemorrhoids and colorectal cancer, no, um, but Going back to a scenario where you're having persistent bleeding, while that might be from your hemorrhoids, it is worthwhile to consider um, that you might need to be screened for colon and rectal cancer. I say this particularly um, in patients who are either, number one, have a family history of colon and rectal cancer, um, but might be younger than 50, or if you um, otherwise have no family history and have noticed this bleeding, while I would see and evaluate you for hemorrhoids, I would also recommend very strongly that you get a screening colonoscopy to look for other reasons for this bleeding um, from your bottom. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Christina Goh. She's an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate who specializes in colon and rectal surgery. So I wanted to ask you about some of the home remedies or medications that might be recommended for someone who's um, having problems with their hemorrhoids. Sure. So often whenever I see patients uh, for their hemorrhoidal problems in the clinic, one of the things that we'll discuss are sort of toileting behaviors and um, dietary behaviors. Um, in terms of toileting behaviors, Really what we want to do is avoid straining um, and prolonged time on the toilet. So patients will say, well, I'm very constipated and I have to press, uh, push a lot um, in order to have a bowel movement. 
If that's the case, um, or you're taking a very long, more than five minutes on the toilet, what I recommend is, you know, just take a break, um, remove yourself from the toilet, and, and just wait a couple more minutes until you feel like it, it, uh, things are ready to happen. Okay. Um, in terms of constipation, um, we will definitely have a discussion about the role of dietary fiber in um, and its ability to help with any kind of constipating or diarrheal effects. So really you want to just have a soft bowel movement that is mildly formed and only takes less than five minutes to evacuate. Um, things like psyllium husk fiber, um, which brand names would include something like Metamucil, um, or console are things that I recommend my patients to take um, at least 15 to 30 grams a day um, along with uh, enough uh, fluids, about 64 ounces um, daily to help have that soft bowel movement and avoid straining. So there are supplements we can turn to um, in addition to increasing fiber in our diets. Yes, that's correct. I think it's actually quite hard to achieve that 30 gram goal solely by eating fruits, vegetables, and, and whole grains on a daily basis. So if someone has tried these things, um, you know, increased their fiber and they're following your guidance on toileting, if hemorrhoids continue to bleed or cause pain, are there minimally invasive procedures that can be offered? So yes, they're, they're, it really depends on what type of hemorrhoidal symptom they have and on physical exam what component of the hemorrhoid is um, bothersome. And what I mean by that is the hemorrhoids traverse the anal canal. So what we consider external hemorrhoids are below a certain line and can be very painful. If it's above the, a certain line called the dentate line um, and it's primarily painless bleeding, these internal hemorrhoids can be treated in the clinic setting with a procedure um, and, and really be relieved that way. One example of this is rubber band ligation, um, where a patient will come in, will do something called an anoscopy, which is, uh, enables me to actually look at all of these hemorrhoidal cushions and literally place a rubber band over the internal hemorrhoid to cut off its blood supply. Within five to seven days, that hemorrhoidal tissue will fall out and be evacuated with a bowel movement, and often patients will say that the bleeding um, that they had been experiencing stops. Wow. Well, from what I understand, there's only a small percentage of people with hemorrhoids who require something more ex involved, you know, with a, a regular surgery. So mm -hmm. how often do you see that, and, and what patients are candidates for surgery? So a hem an excisional hemorrhoidectomy is still a very common procedure to be done. Um, and the patients that I would consider uh, for that would be somebody who has um, symptomatic hemorrhoidal disease that is the external components, um, putting a rubber band in the office over, over tissue that you can feel is very painful and, and um, not appropriate. So physically taking it out would be uh, the only way to treat that sort of hemorrhoidal problem. Um, patients who are having issues with the prolapse that we talked about, where they either have to manually place all that tissue back in their anal canal or it just sticks out all the time, are also candidates for uh, an excisional hemorrhoidectomy. And then finally, patients who have tried all of the uh, medical um, medical managements that we've talked about already or somebody who has undergone rubber band ligation and, and still has a recurrence of their symptoms and no longer wants to go through um, re repeated rubber band ligation are also candidates for a, an excisional hemorrhoidectomy. If you remove the hemorrhoids, um, does that guarantee they won't come back? So as long as they're completely removed, it should not grow back. Um, once the hemorrhoid is out, uh, it, it cannot grow back like a, you know, a, a, the nail on, on, on one's finger. All right. Well, we're, before we run out of time, I wanted to ask you about some ways to prevent hemorrhoids. If we could all sort of avoid developing problems in the first place, you know, maybe that would be the better way to go. Are there things that we can do to sort of make sure that we don't develop problems with our hemorrhoids? So well, I think um, what we had talked about in terms of medical management before 
um, including making sure that you are both getting enough fiber and um, water or other fluids daily are really important to avoid the straining that one might encounter while trying to have a bowel movement. Um, so what I would recommend is, you know, trying to get that tablespoon of Metamucil in the morning and at least 64 ounces of fluids throughout the day, um, trying to minimize um, staying on the toilet um, just to check your news feed or, or, you know, people do all sorts of things in, in a contemplative manner, um, but maybe doing not doing that over the toilet. <laughs> um, and I think that is probably the main way to avoid hemorrhoids. If you do have them, or I'm always happy to see somebody about that. And we still would be talking about fiber. Another thing we would be talking about if it's discomfort that's particularly bothersome is sort of soaking in a warm bath for 10 to 15 minutes as well. So there are some ways that we can avoid um, problems with one's hemorrhoids. So you mentioned constipation. And I just wonder, um, is that something that everyone sort of will deal with at some point? Or is it a warning that a person needs to maybe evaluate their fiber intake or, or that they're developing, you know, problems with hemorrhoids? So constipation is a very common um, issue, and it doesn't necessarily mean that a clinical evaluation is warranted. Um, certainly constipation can cause hard stools to pass that either mean that you need to strain a lot on the toilet, um, or it can also cause hard stools to pass that can cause painful bowel movements as some skin breaks can occur in the anal canal. Um, really, it's never going to be hurtful to add additional fiber and um, fluids to your diet. So if there is a concern that one's constipated, um, starting with fiber and water or other fluid intake um, is always a safe um, and non-harmful place to start. If after that um, a person is still concerned about how their bowel habits are, um, a good place to start is a meeting with your primary care physician who can help determine whether that needs further evaluation from a specialist like a surgeon or a gastroenterologist or any other types of specialties. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much to Dr. Christina Goh. She's an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate, specializing in colon and rectal surgery. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. What medical documentation does everyone over the age of 18 need to have? Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. What can you do now to make sure your affairs are in order in case you become incapacitated? I'm speaking with social worker Antonia Canuso-Reiner about what's important to know about preparing for the end of life. She's a social worker at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air. Thank you so much for having me. Now, this is a topic I know a lot of people don't like talking about, but I also know it's important, maybe especially now with the pandemic. So let me ask you, how often do you see patients and families who have all their medical paperwork in order, and how often do you see people who are lacking some of those things? Oh, boy. So to have all of this medical paperwork in order, I would say, is a very, very rare occurrence, actually, here in the hospital. Um, I, I work in uh, two of the ICUs for neuroscience, um, and it's more rare to have someone have, you know, a healthcare proxy already completed, a power of attorney, um, living will. I would say it's much more um, common for, for folks to kind of have thought about it maybe in the past, but they never got around to it. Um, or they didn't really know what the difference was between a healthcare proxy and a power of attorney. Um, so it comes into play a lot here on our units of trying to um, figure out what to do next when they don't have those documents when they come in. Are we only talking about adults in terms of what people need to have in place before right. they are hospitalized? Right. 
So my advice always is if you are 18 or older, and I know it sounds really young for, you know, an 18-year-old to have some of these documents, but, um, you know, they, they still need them as well. Um, so if you're 18 or older, um, I would say, you know, they're all very, very important. So a healthcare proxy uh, is the document where you appoint someone that you trust to make medical decisions for you when you cannot do it yourself. So um, in order to do a healthcare proxy and a power of attorney and a living will, um, you have to have capacity to do so. So a lot of people um, and families think, okay, well, you know, now my loved one is here in the hospital and they're intubated. Can we do a healthcare proxy for them? Unfortunately, at that point, it's it's too late if they do not have capacity to do so. So these are documents that are really, really helpful to do um, before you have some type of illness or injury that affects your capacity. Um, and, you know, it's not something that's really taught in, like, high school or college or anything like that, and it's not really focused a lot on the media. So I think it's really hard for people to, to know how important the documents are because we're not really told a lot. Um, so let me ask you, someone who's mm-hmm. under age 18, a, a child mm-hmm. still technically, yeah. do, do the parents or guardians speak for them if, if something Correct. happened? Okay. Correct. Automatically. Yes. Automatically. So they don't have a health care proxy or anything like that. Um, of course, you know, they're, they're saying things, of course, matters. You know, we take it into consideration. The hospital staff does. But ultimately, it's the guardian or the parent um, for anyone under 18. So if a if a person has a, a child who is 19 and something happens to that 19-year-old, the parents really don't have a legal say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So even though they're, you know, they're very young, yes, it does um it does change that. And if they have a healthcare proxy, then of course we go based on their healthcare proxy that they've completed. Um that is fairly rare. So what what happens if someone does not have a health care proxy that dictates who they trust? New York State has set up a um, a next of kin list um, of how we can go down the list of who would be their decision maker. So let's say that 19-year-old is um, living with a partner. They're not married, but they live together. They share bills. They live together for you know a decent amount of time. That person would be technically their next of kin as a surrogate decision maker. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So now you used a couple terms I wanted to get some clarification on. Um, Healthcare proxy and power of attorney. What's, Mm -hmm. what are they each and how are they different from each other? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So a healthcare proxy form, um, they're both legal documents. I will say that. So they're both a legal document that um, physicians and people do have to follow because, um, because they're legal. Um, a healthcare proxy basically lets you appoint a healthcare agent, so um, someone who you trust to make medical decisions for you uh, once a physician dictates that you're unable to make decisions for yourself. Um, and a healthcare proxy, it takes about five minutes to complete. You don't need a notary, you don't need a lawyer, um, you just need two witnesses uh, to witness your own signature. Whoever you appoint does not also have to be there. So um, a lot of folks think, okay, you know, my, my mom's coming in today, so we can do the healthcare proxy then. Um, or I can't do a healthcare proxy because my mom lives in Florida. Um, that's okay. They don't even have to be here. Just the actual person who's making the document and then two witnesses to just uh, witness their signature. So that's a healthcare proxy, and it goes into effect only when the person cannot make decisions for themselves. Um, so, so long as they're able to make decisions for themselves, the healthcare proxy is kind of put on the back burner because they can explain, you know, what they want, what they don't want. Um, so that's used in kind of a hospital setting. And then the power of attorney allows um, an individual to appoint an agent to help with their finances. So I look at power of attorney as financial, healthcare proxy as medical, um, and that's a good way to kind of differentiate them. Um, power of attorney, of course, is, is extremely important as well, because if you think about if a loved one does not have capacity anymore, they need their bills paid, they need, um, you know, sometimes bank statements, they need to pay their rent. Um, most places will not let someone do that for you unless you have a power of attorney for them. So it sounds like both of these are pretty important to have. 
very, very important. Yeah, they're very helpful. It reduces a lot of stress, too, when you have a loved one in the hospital um, who doesn't have uh, capacity anymore. It can be really, really stressful for families to try to navigate um, healthcare decisions without maybe having the discussions beforehand, um, and also really, really difficult to pay bills and keep someone out of um, financial hardship because they're incapacitated for a long period of time. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with social worker Antonio Canuso Reiner. So, if somebody has a will, mm-hmm. would a will cover a power of attorney and healthcare proxy? Mm-hmm. That's a good question, too. So there's two types of wills. There's something called a living will, um, and that's something that you write while you're living. So it basically allows you to leave like written instructions to say what you want and what you don't not, don't want, and, um, especially around end-of-life care. So, um, again, this document only becomes effective while, you know, when you're unable to make decisions for yourself. Um, but you can put a lot more information on it. You can you know, just handwrite it. Um, it does have to be, you know, witnessed by two witnesses, um, but that's a living will that kind of explains what your health care wishes are in more length if you don't want to put that on your health care proxy. Um, a will itself is completed, you know, with an attorney, and that's more about your assets. So that's more about, okay, so I want my daughter to have have my house, and I want, you know, my friend to have this jewelry or something like that. So an actual will is more about divvying up the assets, the property, and the money. And for a will, you appoint an executor or, or multiple executors. And they, once you pass away, then a will goes into effect. I see. Now, one other term I've also heard is advanced directives. What, what is that? Advanced directive is kind of like a um, umbrella term for um, things like the healthcare proxy. Uh, the living will is under that category as well, and um, DNR. If people want to do a DNR ahead of time as well, um, so those are kind of clumped into that advanced directive, um, which is a legal document um, that uh, assists with future health decisions. And so DNR do not resuscitate. Yes, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I do not resuscitate. So if someone does, if their heart stops and they do not want to be resuscitated, they say, you know, that's that's that. I'm just going to, you know, kind of let nature take its course. Um, that would be an advanced directive that you can have in place. Um, and you can have it carried over from like one hospital to the next, um, so long as the physician re-signs that document um, and re- kind of renews it. So how does a person make known their wish to be an organ donor? Does that, mm-hmm. does that apply to any of yeah. these documents? Yes, it does. It, so um, on the healthcare proxy, there's, uh, there's a spot where you appoint your agent. You can also appoint an alternate, an alternate person, let's say if something happens to your agent or they no longer want to, um, to be that, that voice for you, which is totally okay. You can also appoint an alternate who would then um, be the decision maker. And then later on that form, there's a section um, for organ and tissue donating. So you can um, say that you want to donate all or any organs. You can specify specific organs or tissues, um, or you can make it like very limited. Um, So you have kind of the power to dictate uh, what you want even in that circumstance as well. All right. Now, the documents we've talked about, the uh, power of attorney, the healthcare proxy, the living will, are, are these, do these have to be renewed or once you have them completed, they're, they're good forever? So, um, so it depends. There is a, a part on the healthcare proxy that says whether you want your healthcare proxy to go indefinitely or if you want it to just be um, for the next month, you can say that. Um, if you don't put anything on there that says that you want it um, to stop and that it has like an end date, it goes on forever until you make a new one. So kind of just like the power of attorney, um, if you make a new one, then it will um, override the prior one, just like a healthcare proxy. So anytime you want to change any of these documents, you can do that you know, fairly easily by doing a new one. Now, all of these, we'll call them advanced directives collectively, Mm -hmm. do you recommend that if someone is coming in for surgery, like scheduled surgery, do they need to have all of this stuff in order just in case? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would recommend at, at any point in time to do one. Um, before surgery is a great idea because it kind of gets you thinking about, you know, what would I want? What would I not want? Who do I really trust in these circumstances? Um, even before elective procedures, as you said, I think is a great time to do it. Um, and the doctors and nurses should be able to do that with you um, while you're there in the office. A primary care physician can do it um, at any point when you're visiting their office. And then here at our hospital, um, us social workers, we do them quite a lot with patients, um, but nurses can do them as well, and, and really anyone um, who knows how to kind of navigate the form. Well, people don't typically carry their advanced directives and healthcare proxies with them everywhere they go. So what happens if you're in a car wreck and you end up at the hospital? How are the people, the doctors and nurses, how are they going to know that you have those documents or how do they obtain them? Right. No, that's a that's a great question. And actually, that's a lot of what we do as social workers is kind of that background investigation. So let's say um, a patient comes in after a car wreck. Um, basically, the the physicians and the you know the trauma teams will do whatever they can at that point to go forward with um, with care um, until we can find any documentation um, that says otherwise or, or speaks to their wishes a little bit more. Um, when we have a, a patient come in, um, first and foremost, we we look to um, we try to gain access to family contacts um, and talk with them about you know do you know if they have a healthcare proxy anywhere? Is there a hospital that they frequent that we can contact? Um, some people have their healthcare proxies on file at you know a hospital up north where a lot of our patients come from. So we call those hospitals, speak with their medical record department. Um, ask to see if they have a healthcare proxy on file. If not, do they have emergency contact numbers listed? Um, if someone has a primary care physician that's connected um, to their chart, we will contact primary care physicians. Sometimes people have those documents there. Um, but we have ways of obtaining them if they're at other locations. Um, and I always advise people as well, besides giving your healthcare proxy to your like primary care physician, make copies for... Um, the people who you appoint. So if I um, appointed you as my healthcare proxy, I would want you to have a copy of that, right? So that if something happens, you could also bring it to the hospital and have a copy of it as well. Okay. Now, I, I imagine this happens a lot too. Someone arrives at the hospital and they don't have this documentation because they don't have any of these documents. So you right. pointed out right. earlier that, you know, sometimes it is too too late to get some of this done, but but are there some things that can be done if someone's still coherent? Yeah, absolutely. If someone still comes in and, you know, even if they're going through something, you know, traumatic or a bad illness, if they um if they have the capacity to do a healthcare proxy, we we would love to do that with them. Um and, and we often offer it, you know, just just when they have just regular consults with folks, you know, asking them, do you have a healthcare proxy on file already? Do you want to know more about it? Do you want to um, complete one here? It only takes a couple minutes. Um, so we always offer that as an opportunity um, to, you know, get their brain thinking about what they would want, what they wouldn't want. Um, and hopefully, you know, a lot of them do choose to create a healthcare proxy at that point. Because um, sometimes just being in the hospital can give you a different perspective on uh on how quickly things can change in your life. And so there's no cost involved to completing a healthcare proxy or a power of attorney. No, no, not at all. Unless, you know, for some folks, they prefer to go to a lawyer to do some of these documents, and that's absolutely okay. Um, We also have free legal services here um, in central New York and, and other parts um, of New York state where you can contact like a free legal advice. And they can at least guide you through it if you feel more comfortable talking to a lawyer about that. Um, you can certainly do that. But no, they are they are free documents. Um, New York State uh, New York State of Health um, New York.gov has these documents as well. Um, they have a great um, PDF that is all about advanced directives um, to learn more about it and to get the actual documents. Now, for a person who's single, um, lives on their own, isn't really close with family, or, or doesn't have friends they feel comfortable with appointing as a healthcare proxy, you mentioned can a can a physician be their healthcare proxy? 
So a physician can, however, they have to choose between one role or the or another. So they can't do both because of conflict of interest. So if you want to appoint a, your physician, um, they can no longer be your acting physician, if that makes sense. So they can kind of choose one or the other. Well, this has been a very informative look at advanced directives. Thank you okay. so much to social worker Antonia Canuso Reiner. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. James McCaig is a physician and writer from Pittsburgh. His poem, Contagion, is similarly eerie in that we do not know what disease we are facing. Contagion. The mask becomes you, so he said, and could not see her smile. It's probably your eyes, he said. Lips often are disguise. Yellow hospital mask with a center stain of red betraying lipstick she earlier had nonetheless put on. By now she felt a warming blush extending up her face, and she wondered if it would peek over the mask's edge like an early dawn over a horizon. And so she stood there, like Juliet on the balcony, six feet or so away. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a network of mental health services for students at SUNY campuses across the state. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.